April Morley. I'm co-founder of Genius Drive and the Enterprise Value Collective. And I'm Tom Pasello, the ROI guy. This podcast is a service of the Enterprise Value Collective, a community for business value-focused leaders and practitioners, and it is sponsored by our consultancy, Genius Drive. And our mission is to help accelerate and optimize the value articulation in each of our customer engagements and throughout the customer lifecycle. And we're here to talk to an absolute sales monster, Todd Capone. He's the best-selling author of uh, two of my favorite books and one that I refer to quite a bit, The Transparency Sale and The Transparency Sales Leader. And he's the founder uh, and speaker and workshop leader for his sales excellence consultancy, Sales Melon. And I do want to point out that Todd is also an acclaimed sales historian, and we're happy to nerd out with him today on that. Todd, hope you have your coffee in hand. Welcome. Thank you. I do. Thank you. Thank you. I'm well caffeinated and ready to go. Yeah. I love research and your book, The Transparency Sale, had some incredible findings in it that you came across that served as the foundation for that. Um, Talk a little bit about what you found. Yeah, we've talked about this before. It's this idea that um, in my last role, I was the chief revenue officer of a company here in Chicago where I'm based called Power Reviews. And as you could probably guess, we're in the review space with a name like that. Uh, We helped retailers and brands collect and display ratings and reviews on their website. So you're buying a pair of Crocs, you're on Vineyard Vines, Jet, a thousand other retailers, and you're looking at a product, you scroll down, there's the reviews. That was us doing the collect and display. Now, what happened was, and again, this should have no connection to sales, but my nerdy brain couldn't help it. Um, we were we did a research study with Northwestern University that was simply looking at buyer behavior when a website's acting as a salesperson. So what do people do? Three data points that came out of it, two of which changed my life like could only happen to a nerd, uh, like quit a job, wrote a book. Um, so the three, the first one that didn't change my life was that we all read reviews today, right? At the time, it was 96%, which was weird. I didn't know there was 4% that still weren't doing it, but it's since gone up. But when we're buying something that we haven't bought before, that's a medium to high consideration online, we all read reviews first. Now, here's the two that changed my life. (laughs) Number one was that 85% of us go to the negative reviews first. So we skip the five stars and we read the fours, threes, twos, and ones. And so I thought, well, that's interesting. I, I understand why at a high level, but all right, cool. The last data point was that a product on a five-star scale, and again, this is across all product categories. So some skew higher, some skew lower, but on average, when a product has an average review score between a 4.2 and a 4.5, that's optimal for purchase conversion. Meaning that a product that has nothing but perfect five-star reviews sells worse than a product that has negative reviews right under it. But the fives actually sell at the same rate as a product that has a 3.25, which is not so good. And so I looked at that and I I couldn't, like I just got stuck on it. And I thought, all right, that's what a website's acting as a salesperson. Like, why do we do that? And does that apply to human to human or B2B selling? And the answer came back emphatically, yes. Like we as human beings at a subconscious level know that perfection doesn't exist 
And we have a hard time triggering a purchase decision when all we hear is perfection. Like we need to go do the homework. It's part of the reason why sales cycles extend because salespeople, and I was guilty of this too. Like, hey, let's talk about how awesome we are and hope they don't find out. Mm -hmm. And that's actually the opposite of what we should be doing. This idea of leading with, hey, listen, this is what we give up to be great at our core. This is what you might not like. This is through empathetic eyes. If I'm sitting in your shoes, I don't know if you can sit in somebody's shoes, but if I'm standing in your shoes, this is what I might be worried about. And if you're cool with that, you're going to love this. And, and that led to a new approach that we took. We became Chicago's fastest growing tech company from 2014 to 2017. And I was like, I got to get these ideas out there. And thus quit my job, wrote a book, and I'm still yapping about it today. Wow, that's so fascinating. So, you know, the reviews, people look at the negative ones first, and they really want to understand what the downside risk is and where things could go wrong so that they can trust where they can go right. So imagine this holds true across B2B and B2C. Why do you think trust is so important for a B2B company to get it right? You know, it's funny. I just think there's this huge opportunity and this huge disconnect behind the way that we think about our role as sellers and marketers and what our role is actually supposed to be. And I warned you, there was history coming. I'm going to give you one of my favorite sales history quotes of all time. And it's from 1911. It's a guy named Arthur Sheldon uh, from his book, The Art of Selling. But the original design of, sell, of, of the sales profession really keyed on this quote. And he says that true salesmanship is the science of service. Grasp that thought firmly and never let go, right? Service. Our profession was designed to be a help, an aid, a consultancy, an advisory to our customers to help them make the right decisions. So much of that starts before the first conversation. The, the best B2C companies in the world have done an incredible job of branding their downsides. Ikea, the number one furniture retailer in the world for 14 straight years, it's a disaster, right? You, like you, gotta, you need a map to find stuff. You got to stack the boxes on the carts that don't have brakes, jam them into the back of your car Tetris style, go home and F-bomb your way through an assembly. And <laughs> why do we do that? Well, because we get modern Scandinavian design furniture that we didn't pay much for and yeah. some pretty decent meatballs. Like Costco, like you need to pay to walk in. You want some ranch dressing? You better like Hidden Valley Ranch. And here's a gallon. Like it, the whole concept, it, it should, from the lens of reality, be that place is a nightmare. But it's about like branding and building proper expectations so that when we walk in and walk out, they're met consistently, and everybody that walks in that door is pre-qualified. They know what they're getting. And that's something that I see marketers and salespeople in the B2B realm miss every single day, where they're like, cast the widest net possible. If you've got yeah. anything other than lint in your wallet, you're a prospect for us. And then we waste all of this time, and the satisfaction levels that spit out the bottom are less than optimal as a result. Brand it, lead with it, qualify in, qualify out faster improve your win rates, and your cycle lengths speed up dramatically when you do this the right way. Yeah. And Todd, how we know it's broken in B2B, Hank Barnes, Gartner Group, the amount of buyer regret 
and low quality purchasers that are being made now is incredible. I think it's 85% or more are dissatisfied with their purchase almost as soon as the ink is dry when it comes to technology purchases. So what are sellers not doing that they really should be doing? Is it, I need to admit right up front, look, if you want this, that, or the other thing, that's not us. And instead what we get is they're pitching and they're pitching hard and yeah. they'll almost agree to like, yes, we can solve that problem. Yes, we can do that. Yes, we can do that. Well, another sales history rant for you. Um, so, you know, buyers know more nowadays, right? That's the theory. Those mm -hmm. words, buyers know more nowadays. Would it surprise you to hear that, that those four words are actually from Thomas Herbert Russell's 1912 book, Salesmanship? 1912, 100, you know, like this idea that back then catalogs were on the rise, mail mm -hmm. order catalogs. I've got one back here from 1908, a Sears catalog that you can buy. It's, it's like Amazon online a today, catalog, mm -hmm. right? Like what, yeah, you could buy a house, you could buy human hair. Like it's nuts. But uh, the point being that there was a concern about the rise of mail order catalogs and advertising being a threat. Like what would we need salespeople for? Mm -hmm. What happened? The opposite happened. We go to 2015 when like even Forrester was predicting the demise of, you know, a million B2B sales jobs would go away by 2020. And yeah, hundreds I was in the of audience thousands. when they announced that. Our yeah. jaws dropped. We're at a sales enablement conference and they're like, yep, your profession is going to be gone in Exactly. Yeah. And, and what happened? The opposite happened. Yes. My, my perspective on this is, A, the, the reason that the profession continues to thrive is because we make adjustments because B, more information hasn't made it easier on buyers, it's made it harder. More information has led to that stat that you were sharing, right? That mm -hmm. we're making poor judgments because there's too much information available. I believe, again, going back to Arthur Sheldon's comment, right? True salesmanship is the science of service. It's doing that homework for the buyer, right? Okay. Call down to the things that are going to be highly applicable through an empathetic lens. That requires better focus from salespeople that you've got to, like, if you're waking up and you're calling on 10 different verticals and 20 different buyer personas every day, you can't possibly help them. Focus, well, I call extreme firmographic focus, but get into those rhythms where, hey, for the next two months, I'm only going to call on health and beauty. And I'm going to be able to walk in and be a true guide to them, do the homework, pull all that information together. And do exactly like you said, like, hey, listen, if I'm in your shoes, here's companies like yours and individuals like yours, you're focused on this, you care about this, here's the parts of it where we can help, but here's the parts where we can't, let's figure out together what's important. And if we're not the right solution for you, my role is to provide a service to help you achieve optimal outcomes, whether it's with us or with somebody else, I'm going to put you in the right place. That's yeah. winning the long game, but... In this economy, winning the long game helps you win the short game too. Yeah. Now we know that with the internet, you know, WebMD did not replace doctors and in fact made the need for them even greater because you go on and diagnose something and it could be everything from a slight pull in your back to cancer, right? <laughs> right. So yeah. it made it more important. I know there's a similar feeling around AI, Todd, and heck, will AI now replace sellers? Talk about that a little bit. Because I think it's going to have the opposite impact. And I think a lot of it gets back to transparency and trust. Yeah, it's funny. Um, 
Uh, first of all, I, I was, I'm doing a few sales kickoffs in January, and this is a side note, but just for entertainment purposes, but mm -hmm. the, the client, uh, I, so it was the vice president of sales, the CEO, uh, the CEO was not on the call, vice president of sales, a couple other leaders. And they're like, Hey, Todd, we got a great idea for your kickoff. Um, we would love for you to come and perform a number with our CEO. He's in a band and like you playing the guitar, <laughs> that would be amazing. And yeah. I'm like, what the heck are you talking about? Like, I'm, I'm the, like, I, I tried playing the guitar. I'm, I have no musical talent at all. And he's like, Hey, I pulled up by AI or chat GPT. And I wrote, give me one interesting tidbit about Todd Capone. And it huh. says that I'm a renowned uh, guitar aficionado and like, what? So, a part of the data there is still off. Like we got some, we got some places to go here. Mm -hmm. But I'll, I'll tell you this: um, from a historical perspective, we've seen the rise of technologies that were supposed to either destroy or completely change the profession forever, and mm -hmm. they haven't. I mean, Alexander Graham Bell, eighteen seventy-six, the first phone call, right? That revolutionized. Sales outreach, the whole process of sales didn't really change it. We screwed it up though, right? We ruined it by using it for good or for evil, not good. Same mm -hmm. thing with email. You know, Ray Tomlinson, 1971, sends an email. What a gift for the sales profession. We ruined that, right? But it didn't change the sales profession. I see it with video. You got LinkedIn, which is this incredible gift to salespeople. I just see that AI is already being used for evil, not good. And mm -hmm. we got to learn some lessons from the past and get that right. But AI has already been a huge support for me. Like when I'm going in and I'm going to do a workshop or a keynote or something for me, I, there's four questions that I ask AI before I have any conversation with a client. And it's saving me so much time. It's just like, hey, tell me what they do. Um, tell me why they would be good for my company and what circumstances tell me why they wouldn't be good for my company and what circumstances. And when I'm evaluating this type of solution, who else should I be looking at? I ask those four questions. My prep is done. It takes me four minutes instead of 40. And mm -hmm. so I, I think to your point, that's the opportunity for the sales world. Let's use it for good, not evil to be able to take that empathetic lens and get back to our service roots. Yeah, absolutely. Using AI to basically make you a better professional, right? I've heard of salespeople researching customers, you know, creating customer profiles, figuring out questions they could ask and really filling in the knowledge gaps by leveraging this technology. Um, you said that some of the modes have been ruined, email, phone calls, you know, and that trust is so critical to the approach with your customer. So let's just say you're a sales leader. How can you help coach your team to foster this transparency and build those trusting engagements? Well, there's a couple of things. Um, I mean, number one is like the dirtiest word in sales tech is scale, right? Like I just feel like every one of these new technologies, they could be used for good, right? Which is to be a better partner and provide a service to our clients and, you know, be able to aid them in making great decisions and achieving optimal outcomes but we get blinded by scale. And you know maybe that's a macro issue with the way that companies are measured and focused on. But when scale becomes the goal, that's when all bets are off. Like that's number one. I, this, this answer that I'm about to give doesn't quite answer your question, but maybe it does a little bit. Um, 
when you look back at the early 1900s, the sales community and everybody in sales, they were truly buyer focused in their sales processes and their sales forecasting methodologies. What, what do I mean by that? Um, Elias St. Elmo Lewis in 1898 had theorized that every buyer goes through four stages on their journey, right? And it's AIDA. You've probably heard it, but it's, are they paying attention? Are they interested? Have they generated a desire? And are they ready to take action? That became the basis for every sales process and every sales forecasting methodology for 40 years at least, right? And what that meant is salespeople and sales organizations, they were focused on recognizing buyer behavior instead of thinking about what they're supposed to do next and their conveyor belt, you know, Henry Ford conveyor belt of sales process. And as a result, our forecasting has gotten a lot worse, right? Every forecasting stage and methodology and everybody listening's CRM is discover, qualify, propose, demo, like sales activity focused. But we've lost our connection to recognizing buyer behavior. Our salespeople just don't know how to do it and they don't do it. If we take that lens and get back to true buyer centrism, and not only our approaches and the words that we use, but the way we use technology, I think we fix a lot of what ails this profession. Amen. Preach it. Preach it, Todd. <laughs> Definitely. Um, so we talked a lot about sales history. Are there three tips that you found like in the sales literature, in the books, in the advice from yesteryear that are still, if not more important today? Well, yeah, I think number one is what I just ranted about, which is yeah, forecasting buyer and, and buyer centrism, right? That's the big one to me yeah. that I just don't see a lot of that. We say that companies, companies say they're buyer centric, but it's just words. They're systemically seller centric in their mm -hmm. processes, their forecasting and where reps get their endorphins. So that's number one. Number two, you know, depending on when this uh, episode comes out, I think is really relevant and it's quota setting and goal setting. Right. When you look back, what's interesting, I mean, I've got a, a book from 1935 that's all about sales compensation planning, right? Hmm. Like 1935, they were writing books about it. Here's what they did differently. Number one, they did a lot more with a lot less. They hmm. had sales quota analysts that they would bring in that would analyze territory by territory, trend by trend, based on geographies that look at the demographics and say, listen, in April, for your territory, it's made up of this type of customer. Here's our solution, how we think it'll fit. Here's what we think the total addressable market is in your territory and what you should achieve, right? And so they would set a quota that was based on, are you going to be a profitable element of our organization, mm -hmm. right? That's quota, but then you had a target, right? The target was based on your territory specifically and what you should be able to attain. And then once that's set, we would sit down together and go, all right, April, Tom, here's, here's the data. What do you think? I love your input on this. Because if you walk into a year with a quota that's just simply 25% less or more than it was last year, and it's everybody gets the same one, you walk into a year like that, you're, you're crushing the spirit of the individuals that you want to run into a year like, you know, let's go. So I think there's a huge opportunity there about quota setting and getting that right because they had no like they had so much less data 
right? They didn't have data scientists. They didn't have AI to help. Like that one to me is an absolute monster. Mm-hmm. Number three, um, gosh, there's, there's like three of them that are burning through my head right now. I'm, I got to pick one. Um, you know, I'll give you, can I, this is kind of a side rant, but it's something yeah, that they were it, really good at. More. Yeah. There's um, back then, and I can't believe that I even did this. Um, you know, at the beginning of every year, we start the clock over, right? Like everybody's scoreboard goes back to zero. Now, I, one of the intrinsic drivers of us as human beings is that our work needs to work mean more than our number, right? That we need to feel like we're our aim of our work matters beyond the number. We're making an impact. There's mm-hmm. a mission. Now, one of the things that's amazing, uh, there's a, a professor out of Duke University, Dan Ariely. I don't know if you know Dan or watched mm-hmm. his work, um, but he, he wrote a book called Payoff, and he talks about a study in it. In this study, what happened is he brought in two groups of people. They all had the exact same task, and they were all going to get paid the same amount for it. The task was to build a, a bionicle, which is essentially a Lego model, right? Mm-hmm. They would build the Lego model. And uh, once it was built, they would pay them for it. And then they would hand them another Lego model and pay them a little less for it. And they would just see, all right, how many are you willing to do before you go? It's not worth it anymore. Here's the, the difference between the two groups. Group number one, when they completed their model, the model was put behind the proctor on a shelf so they could see it. Group number two, as they're building model number two, the proctor is disassembling the number one and putting it back in the box and then handing it to that individual as number three, right? And they're going back and forth, disassembling. Surprise, surprise, group number two did half as many before they gave up. Same task, same dollar amount, half the work because they couldn't see the fruits of their labor, right? In the sales world, we are clear in the deck and going, everybody starts over at zero. We don't mm-hmm. care about what you did last year other than, you know, maybe you get a president's club and you get on stage for 10 minutes and uh, yay. All right. But the other piece of that is, isn't that actually rewarding your bottom performers and penalizing your top performers? Mm-hmm. Like your bottom performers are like, yay, I'm back at zero. Your top performers are like, oh, I'm back at zero. Yeah, do this right? all over again. Yeah. yeah. Only as and good so, as my last quarter. And, and so back then, I mean, these, these, um, individuals and reps, they were remote, they're not around much, but man, they made a big deal of making sure that the clients that they had, they were tied to those individuals forever. When a new hire would walk in, they would just be like, oh, wow, that client, April brought that in? Oh, Tom did that one, right? And like, there was a sense of pride that individuals had with those types of things. We've forgotten all of that, right? Yeah. And so like, and that's- <laughs> Exactly. So like, that's, that's another one that I just think is- um, it's just a mess. And I think it, I'm not saying that you shouldn't start people over at zero, but I think there's better ways for us to show our individual reps and our teams the impact that they're having on the organization long-term. And you'll find that they're higher and like more highly engaged. They stay longer, they do better, and they become bigger advocates for you and your organization. Yeah. Selling like it's 1899. I think we need, yeah. to, we need to go with a little reversion, Todd. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the other one that I was debating, uh, but I, I'll give a quick little That's, glance yeah. to you, is that, um, you know, I, I think everybody who is sane feels that lose, you know, uh, learning from your losses is a big deal, right? There's such a huge opportunity to learn from your losses. Yet, 
organizations say it, but they don't do it. <laughs> if they do do it, it's like, hey, do a loss analysis, right? Let's put it in CRM. We got a drop down, pick why we lost and maybe make a little comment and we'll go, oh, all right, that's good. Okay. I, back then, like I actually found in one of my magazines, a chart that was used by a company that did a full analysis of a loss. So when you lost a deal, it had a series of categories that it was asking uh, mm -hmm. individuals about around, you know, your relationship, your solution fit, your, like there's all these pieces to it. And it's yeah. just yes, no, it's not this big undertaking, but they did a lot better job of not only A, embracing losses as an opportunity mm -hmm. to learn and celebrating the person's effort, but you know, B is if we can create cultures. So for all the leaders out there, you got to create a culture where your reps aren't afraid to not only share that they lost, but own it, right? Mm -hmm. Like so many organizations, they create this, hey, you must have gotten outsold culture. And as a result, the reason that we lost was because the company and the buyer stupid, right? And it's never my fault. And as a result, mm -hmm. we lose for the same reasons over and over again. And we lose really slowly too, which is just as bad. So that, that's a fourth one that I just think is an opportunity for us to really double down on loss analysis and get good at creating cultures where we're not afraid to share our mistakes so those mistakes don't get made over and over again. Preach. Absolutely. And it sounds like it kind of come back, comes back to transparency and trust between sales leadership and salespeople and building that relationship kind of comes full circle. Exactly. Yeah, that's it. I mean, it's um, w when you think about your favorite leaders that you ever worked for, right? Are, are they the leaders that came in and acted like they knew everything and acting like if you're not perfect, then you're terrible, right? You're, you're not, if you're not a five, you're a zero and I'm a five, right? And like, you don't want to run behind those people, right? And the work is a grab at dollars, right? Like I often say that, you know, your reps are coin operated if you're doing it wrong that we've got to strive to create environments where variable compensation becomes the reward for work we love to do and not the reason we do it. And that's, that's an old school methodology, right? This idea of money motivated and dollars. And, and that comes from history too. You know, a time where you didn't have a 401k a hundred years ago. And as you got older, you can see through from some of the classified ads in some of these 1920s magazines that when salespeople or when companies were recruiting, they would put the age in there. Like, hey, we want somebody who's under the age of 30, right? Like, so you had to make your money when you could and your odds of dying young were higher too. So you had to create a nest egg for your families in case something catastrophic happened that you don't, like you've got support structures now you didn't back then. So yeah, money motivation was the case back then. It's, it shouldn't be the case now. You can have both, have a job that you love and get rewarded handsomely for doing it. And I think leaders have an opportunity to create a culture where that really thrives. Now, I'm gonna ask you to get down to one piece of advice that you'd like to leave our Enterprise Value Collective with today, Todd. Um, well, it's gotta be a quote, Ben. Um, there's... It's my favorite sales quote of all time. Um, and it's from another Arthur. This is Arthur Dunn in his 1921 book, Scientific Selling and Advertising. And he, in his book, as you go through, it's like page five. It's a blank page that only has this one sentence on it. And I love it, right? It's my favorite page in any book of all time. The quote is this. 
if the truth won't sell it, don't sell it. Right? If the truth won't sell it, don't sell it. And, you know, it's funny as I teach and, you know, do talks for companies that there was one recently that I did where I talked about this idea of, hey, listen, if you're not a solution fit, and I tell this story of a company coming to me, a CRO saying, hey, Todd, we need prospecting, social selling help. And we hear you're great. Like, oh, thank you. That's, I'm flattered. But, you know, if you made a list of people that teach prospecting and social selling, I would be at like number 47, right? Like I could do it, but there's other people that are better. I would love to make the connection for you. And as I said that on the chat, somebody wrote, no, right? And, and so I stopped and I was like, hey, whoever wrote that, like, come on, tell me about it. And they're like, Todd, I mean, you, the economy is brutal right now, right? Like when we have an opportunity, something that we can fulfill, we got to go after it, right? We got to grab every dollar we can right now. And my question then was, all right, well, when they do go forward with you and figure out that you're number 47 and not a top five, mm -hmm. what do you do about it? And they're like, well, we managed through the dissatisfaction. And I'm like, mm -hmm. no, because in this case, in this world that we're in, where the proliferation of reviews and feedback is louder and louder and louder, that you might win that one deal, but you might lose four others that you didn't know existed because they're not coming to you. They're not answering the phone. They're not answering your email. They're not connecting. We have to play the long game because the long game helps you win the long game, but helps you win the short game too. So Arthur Dunn, embrace it. The truth won't sell it. Don't sell it. You got to embrace the truth. Love it. Such great advice. Thank you so much for joining us today, Todd, on the Value Coffee Talk podcast. We really appreciate you. This was fun. It sounds like the cops are coming. So I guess we're, we're ready to go. Huh? We know it's time to get going. Please <laughs> sign up. We got to get out of here quick for the Enterprise Value Collective on LinkedIn on a GeniusDrive.com website. Stay in touch on the latest events, tools, insights. Hit the like button on this podcast. Subscribe to make sure you stay up to date. Todd also, if you like sales history, he has a sales history podcast. So look up Todd Capone sales history podcast and his books are excellent. The transparency sale and his negotiation techniques all the time. Just fantastic content. And until next time, our Enterprise Value Collective keeps sharing and growing together.